all of these issues and this debate about truth is really um, only tangentially related to you know a political debate or a political party or a legislative you know battle that whatever happens in a particular election or a particular legislative debate we are in it for the long haul because um, it's ultimately a spiritual battle that we as believers never ever quit until Jesus comes and defeats sin and death uh, forever. Outstanding is a production of The Washington Stand, where you can find news and commentary from a biblical worldview. Welcome to Outstanding. My name is Joseph Backhole, and you found the podcast where we have critical conversations about the news of the day and the ideas that shape us, all from a biblical worldview. Now, our goal here is always to help us look at the news of the day, see the crazy, zany world around us, and learn how to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And that's what uh, we as believers are commanded to do. And that requires a bit of a mental exercise. We know that in Romans chapter 12, we are instructed not to be conformed to this world, but to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. So we know that there are uh, forces pulling on us at all times, compelling us, encouraging us to be conformed to the world. But what we are instructed to do is to resist that and instead of being conformed to whatever it is that's happening around us, be transformed by the renewing of our mind. And that's the exercise that we are constantly undergoing here. And in that effort, we often use this term, biblical worldview that we talk about, and we talk about other worldviews. But what we haven't done yet on the program is break down what a worldview is. How do we know what my worldview is? How do you know what your worldview is? How do you know what your neighbor's worldview is? Or can that be known? And that's what we're going to talk about today. And I think this is going to be some good foundation for all of the other conversations as we look at you know political scandals and what's happening in your local school district and on your school board and your local state legislature and all of the stuff that gets us worked up, helping us understand what a worldview is and how that influences all the debates that we are having. So let's get going in that effort. First, we're going to define, before we talk specifically about what a Christian worldview is, we're going to talk about what a worldview is generally. And how I like to define this is that a worldview is essentially comprised of our assumptions about origin, meaning, morality, and destiny. And every single person that you know has a worldview, but most of them are not conscious of what that worldview is. And when I say that every single person has a worldview, it means they have some kind of belief about where we came from, what the purpose of my life is, uh, who determines what is right and wrong. And that's kind of these questions. And that's what we're going to go through here. Because again, the uh, it's our starting assumptions about origin, meaning, morality, and destiny. And there are very different answers to each of these questions. First, the question of origins, as in where did I come from? And I don't mean my parents. What I mean, where did I come from, is where did humanity come from? Where did people come from? And we know there are essentially two competing uh answers to this question. There are, there, there's more than that, but essentially it's a naturalist explanation, which is materialism that we evolved through natural selection. Uh, this is Darwinian evolution that wasn't caused by some intelligent force. It's just the idea that over eons of time, a single-celled organism emerged from a mud puddle and through millions of fortunate mutations turned into the diversity of life that we see on the planet now, including us. 
that's where we came from. That is a naturalist explanation to the answer to that question. Now, of course, we also know that there is a creation answer, and that's, of course, the Christian answer to the question is we go back to Genesis chapter one, in the beginning, God, and God existed, and then he spoke us into being. He spoke everything that we see see into being. Now, at the broadest level, within the creation stories, there are many of them. So not everyone who says, who believes that we were created, believes the Christian uh, story of creation. But essentially you have naturalism and you have creation. Of course, that makes a big difference. Um, Whether you believe a God exists, that changes how you live compared to somebody who doesn't believe a God exists, or at least it certainly should. now, if you spend a lot of time on YouTube, you'll find out theories about multiverses and aliens. And, and there are, you know, kind of fringe, we'll call them third-party candidate explanations for origins. But by and large, the two camps are creation and naturalistic uh, evolution. That's where we came from. Now, the second question of origin or of worldview is meaning. And essentially the question being asked there is, does my life matter and why? Well, you know, why do I answer that question the way I do? And if you have a naturalist assumption about origin, meaning we were not created, then it follows pretty logically from that, that, uh, well, uh, no, my life does not have any meaning ultimately. And there's Gnosticism as an actual official school of thought that's, that purports that nothing has any ultimate meaning. And that actually is a, I think, a logical assumption from a uh, naturalist set of assumptions about where we came from, that nothing has any ultimate purpose. But that doesn't mean that nothing can have purpose, argues the naturalist, because there are uh, those who would say, well, life does not have ultimate meaning in that we were not given meaning by a creator, but it still has meaning because I find meaning in community. I find meaning in pleasure. I find meaning in success. I find meaning in adventure. And and there are many people who live under this worldview that would say, well, life doesn't have ultimate purpose as given to me by my creator, but there's still purpose. There's still value in it. I can still find pleasure and satisfaction and joy in it. So it still has meaning. It's just not ultimate meaning. And then there are those who would say, um, my life has meaning. And this is the Christian answer to the question, because I was created in the image of God. And that's what gives my life meaning. And that, of course, has implications for the life issues uh, on both ends of the life spectrum, um, because there are those who would say, well, life only has meaning if you are able to accomplish, or you're actually only a you're only a person if you are able to accomplish certain things, if you're sentient, if you can support yourself, if you contribute to the society, contribute to the community. That's what gives your your identity a significance, and that's therefore what gives your life meaning. And once you lose the capacity to uh, perform certain functions or feed yourself or support yourself or contribute to the community or be a taxpayer in some way, then you cease to have any ultimate purpose yourself. So as you can see, there are many different answers to this question. Does my life have meaning? Does my life matter? And why is that? And your answer to that question, it has a big influence on on how you live. Now, the third part of this is morality. Who determines what is right and wrong? And that's the fundamental question. And we all immediately recognize the diversity of answers to this question. How do I know what is right and wrong? 
Some would say, well, public opinion determines what is right and wrong, and uh, we can find out what's right and wrong by asking Gallup to go do a poll and see what the public thinks. And then whatever the majority decides, that is in fact what is right and wrong. And that's kind of the premise behind sexual revolutions. We know on issues like same-sex marriage, uh, 40 years ago, only 30% of Americans would have supported same-sex marriage. Now, only 30% of Americans do not support same-sex marriage, according to many uh, public opinion polls. So we've seen a revolution in morality in the way we view these things. And uh, that would, according to this theory, mean that right and wrong have actually functionally changed because public opinion has changed on those things. Of course, the Christian answer to this question about how do we know what is right and wrong is, well, God tells us what is right and wrong. He's revealed to that, that to us in scripture, and it's our job to submit to that. That's where right and wrong comes from. We don't have to agree with it. We don't have to like it. It doesn't have to make us comfortable, but it doesn't change what it is. Of course, there's an entire uh, different school of thought frankly, might even be the majority school of thought that says right and wrong don't even exist. That's a social construct. The idea of right and wrong were created in order for the powerful to oppress the the weak. And so right and wrong are just social constructs. They don't actually exist. And again, if you don't believe that there's a God who tells us what is right and wrong, that actually kind of makes some sense. And in this world, because right and wrong are not real moral things, because real moral truth does not exist. It's basically right makes right, might makes right. Whoever is in authority kind of gets to determine what is right, and there's nobody there to tell them that they're wrong. You just have to have a bigger gun than they do so you can kick them out of power, so you can be in the position of determining what is right and wrong. So we've covered origin, meaning morality, in the last issue that defines what our worldview is, is destiny. And that is the question of what happens when we die. And we know uh, the Christian answer to this question, of course, is that uh, when you die, you will stand in judgment before God for every thought, word, action, and deed. And of course, it is not our behavior that gets us uh, into eternity with God, but it is whether or not we have accepted Jesus's atonement for our sins uh, and in doing so, we have been reconciled to God so that we can once again live righteously, sinlessly in his presence as we were intended to. That's the Christian answer to the question of what happens when we die. But we, of course, we know there are other answers to that. And there are those who would say, well, nothing happens when we die uh, because uh, we weren't created for any purpose. Our life doesn't have any meaning. There is no supernatural realm. We are purely um, material beings. And when we die, we cease to exist. Our consciousness expires because our consciousness is not, a, it's not a soul. It's not eternal. It just goes away. Then there are the kind of reincarnation folks. And that of course exists. Uh, all sorts of, there's versions of, of kind of Eastern mysticism, Hinduism, where you would say, well, if I'm good, then I come back as something better. If I'm bad, I come back as something worse and I'm a cockroach in some kind of, you know, in New York City or something like that. That's the, the bad thing that happens. And that's all depending on whether I do more good things than bad things. And we all think we do more good things than bad things because we all think we're better than Hitler. And that's just kind of how that moral uh, evaluation goes. So 
where we're at is we've defined what our worldview is, a worldview broadly, origin, meaning, morality, and destiny. What do I think about the answers to those questions? And while everybody does have a worldview, very few people have even done what we are doing right now together, which is sit down and think about what do I think about these fundamental things about the nature of my existence? Where do I believe I came from? Does my life have meaning? If so, where does that meaning come from? Who determines what is right and wrong? And many of us in the church would say, yeah, I think God does that, but I really kind of want to stay in control. And sometimes I just kind of edit what God has told me because I prefer not to really submit myself to that. And so do we actually believe that or not? Open question. And then what happens when I die? Do I really believe I'm going to give account of my life before our creator? Or do I not think that? Do I just assume that uh, God's going to give me the benefit of the doubt um, and he's going to think I'm as good as I think I am? And all of those questions, that forms our worldview. So if that's a worldview, and, and you can you can understand if you write down all these potential answers to these questions, um, you can see how a person who believes that they were not created with any purpose, they personally determine what is right and wrong, their life only has the meaning that they give it, and they're accountable to no one when they die because there is no one to be accountable to, that person will and should live differently than the person who says, I was created in the image of God. My life has meaning because he made me. He determines what is right and wrong, and I'm accountable to him when I die. Those things are very different starting points for how to approach life. And as a result of that, they have a very different understanding of how they will view themselves. So th let, me, let me summarize this and these different camps and kind of the what I think are the, the, the competing understandings of who we are as individuals. There's one person who would say, this is a summary of a Christian worldview, who would essentially say, I was created by God with a purpose. My life has meaning because I am created in God's image. God determines right and wrong. He reveals his will to us in the Bible, and I will give account to God for my decisions when I die. That's essentially a summary of a Christian understanding of who we are as individuals. Now, another person would say, from a naturalist perspective, my existence is an accident, is without ultimate meaning or purpose other than when I give it. I determine for myself what is right and wrong. I am not accountable to God for the things I do in this life. And what I do in this life has no effect on the next life is if there is one. So those people see themselves in very different ways. Therefore, just as a matter of logic, it follows that those two people, based on their different starting assumptions, their different understanding of themselves, they will behave very differently to the stimuli of life, to the things that they experience. These two people could be siblings. They might be sitting next to each other in a class. They might be sitting next to each other in, a, in cubicles in a workspace. So there's a lot of things about their lives that are similar and they will have similar experiences. They will, you know, they will grow up. They will have people be mean to them. They will have people be kind to them. They will have good things happen. They will celebrate and tragic things happen that will make them very sad. Um, they will have children. They will grow up. So it, a lot of their life is going to be similar, but the way they respond to those similar circumstances will be very different because of their worldview and because of what they believe about the significance of, the, of their life and the things that are happening to them. So how their worldview will affect their personal decisions. And here's what the person with the naturalist set of assumptions assumptions uh, would say. They would say that I am the final authority of right and wrong. I should trust my feelings. My feelings guide me to truth. So do what makes you happy. 
we'll probably all recognize this is perhaps the prevailing um, moral calculation of the day. That's how most people feel, that we believe we are in charge of ourselves, that we can do what we want and that our feelings are gonna tell us what is true and therefore we just need to follow those feelings on our way to truth. Well, uh, there is, of course, a different perspective. And somebody with a, with a Christian worldview would say, I should obey my feelings. I should obey God, excuse me, even when I don't like it. I can't trust my feelings. My feelings guide me to hell. So do what God says is right. And that those last summary statements, and I'll repeat them here just to make sure we understand what we're talking about. The naturalist would say, do what makes you happy. And the Christian would say, do what God says is right. Those are very, very different perspectives, different conclusions, all based on, and I would argue logically based on different understandings about origin, meaning, morality, and destiny. So if that's a summary of worldview and how it affects the way we view ourselves and how we should respond in answering the question, what is a Christian worldview? We need to understand that having a Christian worldview means answering the questions about origin, meaning, morality, and destiny in the correct way. Then, and this is a very important then, building your life on that foundation. Because what we have in the church is we know that there are, there are disagreements in the church, uh, strong disagreements in the church about a variety of issues because people say they believe the same things. They say, oh yeah, I believe God created me. I believe that he gives my life meaning and I believe that God determines what is right and wrong. Oh, but we really have no way of knowing what God thinks because yeah, I mean, I believe the Bible is authoritative, but it's so vague, it's so confusing and people debate about all these things. So we can't really know what God thinks about making us male or female or you know, whether life is sacred or whether marriage is a relationship between a man and a woman or whether I can sleep with anybody I want to or not to. It's all so confusing that we just can't know what God thinks. Of course, God's in charge and he makes the rules. He just didn't tell us the rules in a way that are clear enough for us to really understand. So what we're all left to is just our best intentions and we're just gonna do what we all think is best and we're all gonna call ourselves Christians. So what you see what happens in that line of argumentation is you have reached precisely the same point as the secularist who would say, I am in charge of myself and my intentions and my feelings guide me to truth and that's what I get to do. And that is the same place where the person who says, well, I'm a Christian, I believe all the God stuff, I even believe the Bible is the authority, we just can't know. It's just too confusing. I don't know anything about it. So I'm just left to my feelings and my intentions to determine what I think God has actually told us in scripture, leaving myself ultimately in charge. So. It's one thing to get the answers to the questions correct. And that, of course, is not the goal of Christianity, is to know the correct answer to the biblical questions. The goal is to take the things that we believe are true and then build a life around them that is consistent and coherent so that if we say God is actually in charge, we're willing to submit ourselves to that even if it's uncomfortable for us. And we have huge, huge swaths of the church at this point um, that are not willing to do that. So we've talked about how our worldview affects the way we see ourselves, where our purpose and our meaning comes from, and then as a result of that, how we respond to the inputs of life in different ways. But there's also uh, another thing our worldview does is it gives us a very different um, understanding 
not just of ourselves, but of humanity as a whole. And there's this story that scripture tells about what's going on in the universe, what's going on on earth, in addition to where we came from, what's the problem, what's the solution to this. And, and the very short version of this story that we can you know, summarize scripture, creation happened, that's where we came from. The problem in the world is sin that came in the fall. That that's what broke it and all of the pain and, and, and suffering and challenges that we face in this world that we look around us and we see um, are our function of the fact that we chose sin, we chose rebellion against God. And as a result of that, the, the creation itself, in addition to the people in the creation, are, are um, decaying and bad things are happening because of sin. But fortunately, there is a solution to that problem, which is redemption through Jesus. Because sin is the problem, Jesus is the solution to the sin problem. He redeems our sin, puts us back into right relationship with God. And therefore, our hope, in, in despite all the challenges that are real, that are self-evident, that we see all around us, our hope is not in the fact that all of our problems are going to be solved here and now on this planet. But our hope is in the fact that there is one day going to be a restored heaven and earth where death and sin and pain will be conquered once and for all. And we will once again live with our creator in perfection, in shalom, as we were originally intended to. But that only happens once sin has been conquered finally, once, once and for all. And the only reason that hasn't happened yet is because God in his patience is giving us time to repent and turn to him. Because once he has to deal with sin finally, he has to deal with us finally because we are the source of the sin. And so in his patience, he's giving us time to repent, to turn to him so we can spend eternity with him when sin is ultimately conquered. But that's where our hope is. So we can look at all the circumstances of life, still have joy because we know that for Christians, this is as bad as it ever gets. Now the converse of that and the, the tragedy, which should compel us to evangelism is the recognizing for those who are not believers, this is as good as it ever gets. And uh, that could be a problem. So this creation, fall, redemption, restoration story is a summary of how the gospel, how scripture encourages us to see, um, not just as, as individuals, but us as humanity in, in God's story of creation. But as we know, there are competing narratives for what it is that we're here for and what it is that we're about. And rather than creation, we know that there's an, an, a naturalist understanding of where we came from. And there's other things you know, with secularists and our friends on the left and all of those, there's something, there's some common ground that we have in that all of us, we look at the world around us, we survey the landscape, we watch the news, we see what's happening in government and schools and in, you know, poverty-ridden nations around the world. Nobody looks at the current circumstances and says, yeah, everything is perfect. This is exactly how it should be. Nobody says that. So the common ground is the recognition that there are problems in the world. And we know from the, the, the Christian perspectives, the root of the problem is sin. But that is not the diagnosis that naturalism, that secularism provides for the problem. So instead of the fall being the problem and sin being the problem, they would say the real problem in the world is injustice. That's the root of the problem. 
And therefore, in in injustice that happens when the oppressors oppress the oppressed, and the solution to that problem, therefore, is not redemption through Jesus, but it's revolution through politics, which means I and my friends, in order to bring about this revolution and deal with the injustice that is the source of the problems, we have to seize enough political power that we can control the the levers of power and government and society so that we in our benevolence and goodwill, because we know we are not corruptible, it's just everybody else is corruptible. Once we have enough power, then we will go eradicate the injustice. And then once the once the systems have been fixed, then we can all live in peace like we know we are we would naturally because we're just we're born right the first time. I got the bumper sticker on my car to prove it. And because of that, all we need is for the systems to be good and then we will live as gentle, benevolent, peaceful beings like our nature would compel us to do. That's of course the theory. Lots of evidence that that's not really true, but that's where we're going with this kind of secular arc of history. And therefore, because the solution to the problem of injustice is revolution through politics, where is our hope? Where Christians put our hope in a restored heaven and earth once sin and death have been taken care of for good, the secularist, the naturalist does not have that hope. And so their only hope is in the utopia that can be created here and now in this life once they have seized enough political power to get rid of all the injustice that they know is the source of the problem. Now, if that's your worldview, if you believe that the problem is outside, not inside, and that politics is the solution and the best we can hope for is whatever utopia we can try to create here on earth, you care an awful lot about politics. And we all saw and probably even chuckled after Donald Trump was elected in 2016, the pictures of the people on the sidewalks like wailing, we're talking wailing and gnashing of teeth kind of response to the election of a guy that they really didn't like. And of course, we all have a diversity of opinions about Donald Trump. And right now that doesn't matter. But just understanding the emotional reaction to that situation was because... The secularist, the naturalist does not have a plan B. And that's a frightening place to be. If you can't win politically, you have no place else to put your hope. And this is something that should allow us as Christians, and frankly, this is a good test of where our hope really is and where our worldview and, and, and what our worldview is, is uh, informing us of is if we cannot be, you know, see an election that doesn't go our way and still maintain some level of peace and hope and joy through that, maybe we've got too much of our heart invested in things that are that are temporary um, because we know that these problems are, are here and are not going away until Jesus fixes it at all. But understanding where this secular naturalist set of assumptions about origin, meaning, morality, and destiny, and what that requires you to think about the world that we live in. They don't believe that the biggest problems we face are inside of us as a, in, in our own hearts. They believe the biggest problems are outside of us. Now, as Christians, we, we understand that the real problem is, is sin that lives in each one of our, our, our own hearts, which means for each one of us, if we want to make the world a better place, as the famous American philosopher Michael Jackson once said, if you want to make the world a better place, take a look at yourself and make a change. Now, that's exactly what the biblical story compels us to do. We've got in, in the, the um, 
you know, the amendment that we have to make to Michael Jackson's approach there is God is actually the one that makes the change on our heart. Um, we have to accept responsibility for it, but ultimately the spirit regenerates our hearts, gives us new desires, and that's what's the real solution to the problem. But our friends on the left do not have that understanding of where the problem is. The problem is always outside them. So they are always fighting external battles. We have to fight the oppressed on behalf of the oppressors and however we define that. And we've talked about that in, in past episodes about how that works intersectionally and otherwise. But we as believers need to understand where this stuff is coming from. So when we have differences of opinion and when we see people expressing ideas that we we disagree with, we begin to understand, oh, that actually makes some sense. And rather than arguing about, you know, whatever the issue of the day is, we can go back and say, if we're going to come to agreement, why don't we find out where our starting point is? This is really helpful in church. If you have a, a Christian friend that you disagree with about politics, stop arguing about you know, the abortion issue or the trans issue or the marriage issue, whatever that is, go back to the beginning and say, okay, before we talk about that, tell me what you think about origin. Where did we come from? Tell me what you think about the meaning and purpose of our lives. Tell me what you think about who determines what is right and wrong. And then tell, tell me what you think about what happens when we die. Now, one of two things is gonna happen when, when you go through that exercise is one, you'll find out they aren't actually a Christian if they can't say God made me, God gives me purpose because he was I was made in the image of God, that he determines what is right and wrong and he revealed that to us in scripture. It's my obligation to submit to it and I'm going to be accountable to him when I die. If they don't believe those things, then you're not actually maybe dealing with a Christian. You might be dealing with a churchgoer, but they not, might not be a Christian. But if they do affirm those things and they haven't done the work of saying, okay, what are the implications of believing those things about this issue, um, then you can help that process along and that can actually be constructive because here's how our worldview affects our politics. You've heard the phrase, undoubtedly my body, my choice. It's most often affiliated or associated with the issue of abortion. And in recent years, a lot of people talk about it in the context of vaccines, though mercifully we think that is kind of in the background. But what is going on with my body, my choice? What I'd hope to convince you of is that my body, my choice is not really a political slogan, even though it's chanted at political rallies all the time. My body, my choice is really a statement of faith. Uh, many of us attend churches where we recite the Apostles' Creed on Sunday morning, and we remind ourselves of the things that are ultimately true. My body, my choice as a slogan serves the same function. And you'll recognize the meaning associated with origin, meaning, morality, and destiny embedded in this slogan. When you say my body, my choice, when someone says my body, my choice, what are they saying? They're saying, I belong to myself. I'm in charge of myself. I, my life has the meaning such that I give it. I'm not accountable to anyone because I probably wasn't created by anyone. And if I was created by someone, all they really want from me is to be happy. And this is what makes me happy. And because I believe I get to determine what is right and wrong for myself, that's what I'm going to do. My body, my choice. Now, we associate that most often with the issue of abortion, but once we recognize the worldview assumptions, we begin to see this my body, my choice ethos, this my body, my choice religion 
everywhere in the cultural space. Let's take the the uh, the same-sex marriage issue, which of course it started as domestic partnership, became an issue of of you know. Um, same-sex marriage and whether homosexuality itself was going to be criminalized or decriminalized, all of those questions. But the thrust of the sexual revolution in general, and, and it extends far beyond the issue of same-sex relationships, what is it? It is essentially a summary of a naturalist set of assumptions about worldview. I was not created by anyone. Therefore, my life has no ultimate meaning other than what I give it. I've determined for myself that happiness is the purpose of my life. And I get to determine what is right and wrong as long as I'm not hurting anyone else as determined by me and I'm not accountable to anyone else for what I do. Therefore, if what gives me happiness, if what gives me meaning is to have sex with whoever I want to, whenever I want to, I should be able to do that because there is no ultimate truth and there's no other person who could tell me that I'm actually wrong. My body, my choice. That's the same argument that was always being made in that context as well. And you'll recognize this in the debates over transgenderism. Also, what are they saying? Well, I wasn't created for any particular purpose. My life has no meaning. My body doesn't inform me of anything because no one created it. There's no creator of my body to consult to find out what it's actually for and if it has any significance. And because of that, my body has only the purpose that I give to it because it belongs to me. I determine what is right and wrong. And if it is in my best judgment, the quickest path to happiness to modify chemically and surgically my body so it aligns with my mind's understanding of who I actually am, who are you or anyone else to be able to tell me that I shouldn't be able to do that? My body, my choice. You'll recognize this in a physician-assisted suicide. It's the same argument and that campaign is, I mean, we got to be ready for this in the decades to come because it comes from the exact same my body, my choice tree. If the purpose of my life as determined by me is to be happy because I wasn't created by anyone else who would give me any other purpose. If right and wrong is determined by me because there's no standard of right and wrong above me and therefore I get to determine checked only by my own conscience and my own intentions, what is right and wrong for me, then I get to do whatever I want because I'm not accountable to anybody else. And since my body is no longer uh, making me happy because it's causing me either physical or psychological pain, I should be able to end that life whenever I want to. After all, it's my body. It's my choice. It's the same argument that's going to uh, un that's going to propel the effort to decriminalize prostitution. Since we belong to ourselves, since we determine what is right and wrong for ourselves, if the best use of my body as determined by me is to commoditize my body because I either enjoy it or I just like the money, who are you to tell me I can't do that? After all, it's my body. It's my choice. Now, there's a couple things I want us to be mindful of as we kind of internalize this understanding of what a worldview is. And what it should help us understand is a couple of things. Is one, that our, our differences of opinion about political issues are generally not a function of our intelligence or our intentions. Now, we've all been in enough kind of political debates in person or online, we've seen this happen a, a bunch of times, where some version of the following scenario plays out. It's, uh, you know, you and I are in a debate 
and I say, you know, I'm convinced of a particular opinion, and so I bring all of my, all of my evidence to you. I, you know, copy and paste it, put it online, let you read it, or I just, you know, hand it to you if we're in person, whatever that is. I present to you the evidence that has convinced me that my position is right, and you consider that evidence, but you still don't come to agree with me. So what am I inclined to do? I'm inclined to determine that, well, I gave you all the evidence. You don't agree. Clearly your mind is not working properly. You just must be stupid. However, there's one thing that's uh, causing me to reconsider that ultimate conclusion because you and I have actually had something of a dialogue and it seems that you can form sentences and make arguments and so I'm not certain I believe you're just dumb. So the there's one other explanation for that because I gave you the evidence, you didn't agree with me. Furthermore, I told you that your position is harming people, that what you believe is actually ruining people's lives, yet you still have not retreated from your position. Therefore, if I don't conclude that you are stupid, the other possible explanation is that you are just simply evil. Now, we've all been part of exchanges where that's kind of where we go. We retreat to our corners and we conclude that the people on the other side of this issue either are less intelligent than me or they have bad intentions. But what I hope this whole exercise does is helps us understand that in most cases, neither of those things are true. Now, as a, as a matter of logic, half the population has below average intelligence. That doesn't mean they can't follow a conversation, but you know, I just have to accept the fact that that's true. But very few people actually have bad intentions, very few. There's not that many sociopaths in the world, thank God for that. They do exist, I hope you don't know any, but most people are running around intending to do the right thing. So why do we reach such radically different conclusions while we're all trying to do what's best for our friends and neighbors and families? That is explained by our worldviews. When we have some people who are starting from the premise that my life is an accident, my existence is an accident, it has no real meaning, I determine for myself what is right and wrong based on consultation with whoever I follow on TikTok, and I'm not accountable to anybody else because there's nobody else to be accountable to. We should be surprised when that person reaches the same conclusion about fundamental issues as the person who says, God created me. My life has purpose because I'm created in his image. He determines what's right and wrong, and it's my job to submit to his will in all things at all times. Those are such radically different starting positions that we shouldn't be surprised when people disagree. We should be surprised when people agree. And again, when we want to, if we want to have more constructive conversations about this, the exercise is to go back and let's talk about the things that matter ultimately and then work from there to the implications of our starting assumptions, the implications of our worldview to issues like marriage and the sexual revolution and transgenderism and tax reform and education and parental rights and whatever else you want to talk about. How does those, how do our starting assumptions apply uh, to those things? Before believers, I think there's, I hope that there's another uh, implication for all of this is that understanding that uh, 
really this is not political this is not uh, this is not a clash between red and blue uh between the donkeys and the elephants this is a spiritual war between truth and lies between competing truth claims about who is in charge of the universe and we as believers go back to genesis chapter 3 when man first fell when the serpent told eve that you will not surely die if you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you will be like god that was the first my body my choice moment for humanity when we said we want to be in charge of ourselves and we have been waging that war ever since genesis chapter 3. why is that important for us to recognize and and be conscious of at all times because it helps us to engage what we call culture wars political wars on a different plane we recognize that this is not ultimately about politics this is ultimately about competing claims about over truth about who's ultimately right, who ultimately can be trusted, who's in charge of the universe. And God is saying, I am, and has been saying that since the beginning, and that, of course, is the correct answer to the question. Meanwhile, his creation has been saying, no, I am mine. And we've all seen a two-year-old say that over and over and over again. So we should, it should inspire us, I hope, to engage in this entire um space in a way that is far more productive because we're fighting it on a spiritual plane which is where that battle is actually really taking place and when we do we will treat the people on the other side of these issues differently recognizing that because this is a spiritual war they are not ultimately the enemy they are ultimately the the prize uh, it, it's not about defeating them politically it's about winning them spiritually about winning hearts and minds in that process um, and in addition to that it should cause us to never retreat and never quit once we realize that this uh, all of these issues and this debate about truth is really um, only tangentially related to you know a political debate or a political party or a legislative you know battle that whatever happens in a particular election or a particular legislative debate we are in it for the long haul because um, it's ultimately a spiritual battle that we as believers never ever quit until Jesus comes and defeats sin and death uh, forever. So friends, that's a little bit about uh, our introduction to a biblical worldview. And I hope this, as, as we move forward here on Outstanding, we're gonna tackle a whole bunch of issues, some of which might seem you know, only casually important but this is the framework that we're that we're working from recognizing that that it really is my body my choice versus Jesus is Lord and that's the debate that's the real battle and as we see it that way we hopefully will engage um, more zealously uh, and also more lovingly understanding uh, that this really has very 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 little to do uh, with politics when it's all said and done so thank you for uh, joining me for this one. And if you've enjoyed this, share it with a friend and invite them into the conversation that we are having here on Outstanding. And again, as always, if you have questions, uh, comments, if you'd like to suggest topics, I'm happy uh, to hear from you on that. You can email us at outstanding at washingtonstand.com. Again, that's outstanding at washingtonstand.com. Love hearing your thoughts, suggestions, comments about what's happening here. And share this with a friend if you can, because uh, welcome them into the conversation. Uh, if you've learned something, somebody else probably will too. Thanks again for joining us. My name is Joseph Mackle, and this has been Outstanding. 
Outstanding is a production of The Washington Stand, where you can find news and commentary from a biblical worldview.